Well, I think you've all heard the phrase, don't miss the forest for the trees. You've probably even said it at one time. It basically means that um, we shouldn't get so caught up in all the details that we forget to see the big picture. The details are good, but sometimes we can be so consumed with them that we we forget of, of, of the larger picture, uh, what's being done on a larger scale. But I also think, and sometimes we don't think in these terms quite often, but I think sometimes we can also at times miss the trees for the forest. In other words, we can be so consumed with the bigger picture that we miss out on the, on the little things, on the details of the day-to-day. And I think we can see that in a couple of ways. We can see it one today, and I think we can see it one as well in our story or in the narrative that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, many today miss the trees for the forest um, because... They miss the true significance um, of the, the details of this particular passage because they are looking at the larger picture of Passion Week. And don't get me wrong, the bigger picture of Passion Week is something that we should look at and we should be looking at the larger picture so that we can keep things in their context. But there are times that we look so much forward to what's ahead next weekend That we miss those details of things leading up to it. But it didn't, it doesn't just happen for us today. It also happens, or it was happening for those in the crowd. I believe they were so caught up in the picture that they had painted themselves of what the Messiah would look like and what the Messiah was going to come and do that they missed the details of the prophecies that had been spoken of that would have given them an idea or better help them to see what the Messiah truly came to do. And it's my hope tonight that we don't do either of those things. It's my hope that we see the true significance of the details of this passage that we're going to look at tonight, that Jesus came to deliver us spiritually. He came to deliver us spiritually by bringing eternal salvation to all who would believe. And I want us to see the significance of the details so that we see that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one that we've been singing about tonight. He is reigning. He is ruling. I want us to see the significance of the details to eliminate any faulty perceptions that we might have about him so that we can rightfully answer the question, who is this Jesus? And that we can answer it appropriately. Now, Ernie did a great job of reading our passage, and because of the things that we have to do a little later in terms of membership vows, if it's okay with you, I'd like for us to just to go ahead and pray and then jump into the passage. So uh, let's uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, we want to thank you so very much for this time that we have to gather and worship, and we thank you for now this time of the preaching of your word. And we would ask that you would give us ears to hear. That you would speak truth and and as always, we we do desire to see Jesus. We want to see him. We want you to eliminate the, the distractions and those things that might keep us from seeing him. And that you would help us as we look at the details of this passage that we might answer the question, who is this Jesus more thoroughly, more appropriately? Because he is our only hope. 
So grant us that opportunity now. Fill us by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I've chosen to break this down into four parts. I know if you look at the outline at the back of uh, in the sermon notes at the back of the bulletin, it, it only gives you three Roman numerals. There should be four. Uh, the, Thank you for being gracious. There were several things throughout the bulletin uh, I noticed this morning that I wish I had seen earlier. But anyway, there are going to be four points tonight. We're going to look at an overarching passion, an obvious plan, an obligatory parade, and an oleo of perceptions. Yes, I was really pushing it for the alliteration, but the word fits. And you'll see as we get to the end that it does so. But let's start with... An overarching passion. Matthew begins this chapter by saying these words when they drew near to Jerusalem. And as we focused on the last several weeks, uh, Jesus has been purposeful in communicating that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And even recently has said, we are on our way to Jerusalem so that he might fulfill the father's will. He is headed to Jerusalem and he said three times that he's going there to die. He's turned his face towards Jerusalem. He has set his course for Jerusalem. His passion is fulfilling the will of his father regarding what would take place there. It is a new stage. He's turned a page in regards to his ministry. But he was passionate about fulfilling what it was that the father was had him to do. Even though he was willing along the way to pause and join in other people's agendas. He wasn't going to set his own agenda aside And miss what the father wanted him to do. He wasn't tempted to pursue something that was going to be commendable and even good for something that was great. He had a resolute purpose. He was determined. He was unyielding. He was unwavering. He was unbendable. And he had an an objective that he was going to accomplish. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. But thankfully, he must also rise again from the dead. It was his purpose. It was his mission. It was his passion. And I think we have to admit sometimes that we struggle with that sort of resoluteness. We don't necessarily completely understand it, much like the disciples don't understand that because we don't understand that determination. And I think there there are several reasons, but three in particular that I think that we struggle with. One is we are inundated with choices throughout our everyday lives. Very very few things that we encounter on a day-to-day basis only has one option. And even in those areas that there's only one option, we have this tendency, and I say we, maybe... I'll just say me, but I have this tendency and hopefully you do as well. But you, I mean, it's not a good thing, but I don't want to be alone. We, we, we have this tendency to rationalize and justify the options that we create when there really shouldn't be an option at all. Secondly, William Law once said that we always choose according to the strongest inclination at the time. And again, I think we would all agree that our inclinations change on a moment by moment basis, depending upon our circumstances and our emotions. So because of that, those those inclinations come and we choose. And so we don't understand that resoluteness. And then thirdly, we live in a culture where passion and commitment and resolve are by and large considered negative attributes, unless you're agreeing with somebody else. In other words, 
Anyone with any resolve is considered intolerant, inflexible, and rigid, except those who think you're being intolerant, inflexible, and rigid. But because of that, we, we, we tend to back up. We, we begin desiring to please men rather than God. And in the long run, we become fickle and weak. And we, in, the, in the end, we lack commitment. And so we don't understand the resoluteness that Jesus Shows as he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who had set his face toward Jerusalem. He was the one that was passionate about his goal. And he was the one who said back in chapter 16 that we should be resolute and we should be of self-denial and take up our cross and follow him. So the resolute one calls us to be resolute in our following. The unyielding one calls us to be unyielding in our devotion to Him. The unwavering one calls us to be unwavering in our affection for Him. And the determined one calls us to be determined in our obedience to Him. And unfortunately, we struggle with that resoluteness, being unyielding, being unwavering, being determined. But fortunately for you and for me, despite our lack of determination and resoluteness, the Lord Jesus remained so on our behalf. The Lord Jesus remained faithful. The Lord Jesus remained resolute and unyielding and unwavering and determined. And he went to the cross. And he did suffer and die and he was raised again. And it's with that same amount of passion that He continues to work in us, even now, by His Spirit. We can rest assured that the work that has begun in us will be completed because He set His face toward Jerusalem. Which leads us to the second point. Why an overarching passion? Well... One reason is because he had an obvious plan. Look again at verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. A plan is obviously in place. Every detail has already been ordained. Not one element was secret or a surprise. The fact that he had been talking about this now for several chapters is one clue. Also, the fact that he has been reiterating the same plan along the way helps us to understand that the plan had already been put into motion. The next clue is that the donkey and the foal are right there where he said they would be. And another clue is that Zechariah and Zechariah 9.9 had already prophesied that it was going to take place. The prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
It's been prophesied. It's being fulfilled. But even in, in John's gospel, we get another idea that this plan has already been set in motion. We, we see a timetable that he reveals to us that helps us understand how things had already been set prior to six days. John says six days prior to the Passover, Jesus goes and visits Mary, Martha and Lazarus. And that would have been on a Sunday. John writes in chapter 12 that the next day he enters into Jerusalem. Well, that would have been Monday. If you remember from Exodus chapter 12, uh, the nation of Israel were told that they were to kill, they were to take in the lamb for the Passover on the 10th day of Nisan, and then they were to sacrifice that lamb on the 14th day of Nisan. Well, what's interesting about this Monday, back in 30 AD, when many believed that Jesus was crucified, that that Monday happened to be the 10th day of Nisan. And on Friday when he was crucified would have been the 14th day of Nisan. Jerusalem welcomed the Passover lamb. Israel killed the Passover lamb just as they had been doing for hundreds of years. Just not in the way they had anticipated. And then you add to that that Jesus determines to use men. Jesus could have called the animals to himself, much like for those of you with greater hair than I, you remember um, the Lone Ranger would call Silver, right, with a whistle. I believe it was a whistle. Jesus could have done the same thing in his omnipotence. He could have whistled. He could have snapped his fingers. He probably could have just thought it and the animals showed up. But instead, God in his sovereignty and Jesus in his obedience summons two disciples to go and to look for the animals. And he summons to, uh, the, the animal owners to give up of those animals. It wasn't as if he was lacking anything. It wasn't as if he needed some resource that wasn't as, at his disposal. It wasn't as if uh, he was lacking or needed help. But he simply delighted in the faithful servant uh, service of those who were loyal to him. And the disciples were told to go, and they went. The animal owners were asked for the donkey and the foal, and they gave them away. Now, church, take heart, because as I've said several times over the last few weeks, that the crucifixion of Christ, this journey to Jerusalem and His, his suffering death um, and crucifixion and resurrection was not plan B. And I know we hear that and sometimes we, we don't really take that to heart. But we need to understand that he, God did not have to adjust his plans because of an unruly crowd. God did not have to adjust his plans uh, because of an obstinate people or some power hungry religious leaders. God was using all of them to bring about his sovereign plan of redemption. And we see this obvious plan and we can also take heart that... Not only have, did he use others in his plan of redemption, but we have, by God's grace, been chosen and included in his plan of redemption as we see it unfolding before our very eyes. We're a part of that. And like his disciples, we need to remember that we, we are called to obey his word and we should obey his word. And like the animal owners, we need to remember that those things that he has given to us and entrusted to us, we need to hold with open hands. 
and be willing to release them so that if called upon that whatever or whoever that is or they are. They, they might be used for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, for the good of ourselves and the good of our neighbor. And that brings us to an obligatory parade. Verses 7 to 9, they, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The wait was over. Finally. Right. The wait was over. The fullness of time had come. A very common phrase throughout the Gospels. But the fullness of time had come. And it was no longer necessary to, un, to, to withhold who he was or what he had come to do or to speak in terms that were going to be confusing. Yes, he had for the last three chapters been telling them more and more. But now it's all out there. And now at this point, he's been traveling, he's been walking everywhere his entire ministry. And now is the time that he comes and rides in. It's a processional for a dignitary, for royalty. And he comes riding in and not simply riding in, but riding in on a young colt who probably has not been ridden before. And also so young that it needed its mother alongside to keep it from becoming excited as the crowd was going Say crazy, that may be a little overstatement. But in case it was chaotic, as we'll see in a minute. And it was, as we've already said, a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And as he's riding, some are going before him and some are lagging behind. And those that are going before him are laying their cloaks down on the ground. And, and they're, lay, they're, they're tearing off palm branches and laying those on the ground. And this is a, a sign of respect and submission to one in authority. The authority of a monarch. And they begin shouting, Son of David, that messianic title. And they're quoting from Psalm 118, the, the halal and they're, and they're crying out for him to save them and to deliver them and to grant them success. And as, as, as Matthew is looking back and thinking about this, he interjects just prior to the quotation from Zechariah 9. He includes a phrase, just part of a verse from Isaiah 62. And I want to read, uh, read that phrase. I want to read all of it. It comes out of verse 11, but I also want to read... Verse 10 and 12 around it. I think you'll see why it comes to Matthew's mind. It says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. And here's the one phrase he uses, but say to the daughter of Zion right in the middle. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. 
Why does it come to Matthew's mind? Well, his point is clear. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew says it's at this moment that the King, that the Messiah is entering into the gates of Jerusalem. And those those cloaks and those palm branches are to, to soften the road, to remove the stones. And that the King enters into Jerusalem and he's proclaiming as he comes that he's brought salvation to the people of God. And he wants them to know, as we learned in Matthew chapter 50, or not in Matthew, in Isaiah chapter 53, back over Christmas, right? He says that the reward and the recompense, the reward for his work on their behalf, his death, it's up, upcoming. The reward of that is those who would believe. Those for whom he died. And those for whom he died are called a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, sought out in a city not forsaken. I've I've called this an obligatory parade because every detail of this parade and Matthew's description of it points to the fact that it was a compulsory response for who Jesus was. It was a compulsory response. It was a royal procession. They were obligated to give these accolades because he is, was and is the king of kings and lord of lords. He alone is worthy of that honor. He alone is worthy of that admiration. And to this day, he remains the one and only deserving of that adoration and honor. He is the one and only that is deserving of those praises and that and that and those accolades. He alone remains worthy of that obligatory parade for royalty. He alone remains and always will be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the only one in Paul's words that God has highly exalted and bestowed on the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one else deserving of that royalty There is or, or loyalty. There's no one else worthy of that submission. There's no one else who, who rightly commands our respect and our devotion. Period. And because He is our salvation, and for those who have placed their faith and trust in Him, and, and, and praise the name of Jesus, we are a holy people. We are redeemed of the Lord. We are His reward. We are His recompense for His work. Brothers and sisters, as Zacharias stated and as Isaiah states, we should behold our King. We should behold the King. May He lift our eyes that we may do so. At this point, it all looks good, but there's one more detail. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now again, this parade was one of the most open displays of honor that we read in the Gospels. But as we look closely... There is this oleo of perceptions present. The word is defined as miscellaneous. It's a miscellaneous mixture or a hodgepodge. 
And I don't know about you, but I've read this passage many times. And it's very easy to read it quickly and to, to run through it. And, as I, and, and again, because we're looking at the big picture and we're excited about what's coming. And, and so we just we, we miss these particular details. In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew says there's a crowd that is following him. They've been traveling with him. Uh, the crowd has grown rather large. Uh, some have been there for a while. Uh, some have joined recently. Some have uh, seen the things that he's been doing firsthand. Others have simply been hearing the stories as they've gone along and, and jumped in the tr- on the train. Others, uh, well, most, if not all of them, are Galileans. And this is very important because... Galilee was separated from the southern, it was a province, it was separated from the southern province of Judea by Samaria. And this geographical distinction created uh, racial, political, economic, cultural, linguistic, and religious distinctions as well. So much so that our commentator R.T. France makes this comment in his commentary on Matthew. He says it means that even an impeccably Jewish Galilean in first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us. And all the communal prejudice of the supposedly superior culture of the capital city would stand against his claim to be heard, even as a prophet, let alone the Messiah, a title to which, as everyone knew, belonged to Judea. To recognize the realities of the situation is to gain new insight into the obstacles facing Jesus of Nazareth in gaining acceptance as a credible Messiah in the southern province, despite, or even perhaps, because of the enthusiasm he had excited in his own province or province. So his being identified, we, we read it here and we read it in other places, particularly throughout the Gospels. We read as him being a Galilean from Nazareth. We read that and it's included because it's a big deal. And it's a big deal and it constantly underlies the confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. That said in verse 9. Again there are some of his group. Of this particular group behind. Some ahead. They're dropping the, the cloaks. And the, and the branches. And all of them are shouting Hosanna. We have to remember again. Back from John. Uh, word of Lazarus. And his being raised from the dead. would have That, that news would have spread to the city. And so when those in the group that are ahead of him begin to get to the city, they begin to announce his arrival. Some of those would have already heard about what was going on. So this perfect storm begins to brew there in the city inside the gates. And the Galileans are shouting, Hosanna, son of David. The Messiah is coming. There are others who are claiming he's nothing more than a prophet. We have to remember that some are praising him simply for the miracles that he performs. Some of them are praising him because they've, he fed them, took care of them. Uh, maybe they like the stories that he told. 
The Jerusalem Jews didn't like the, the idea of the Messiah coming from Galilee. And so they're murmuring to themselves. They believe the Messiah was one of them and he needed to be from Judea, particularly Jerusalem. And, and the Pharisees or religious leaders are just Pharisees and religious leaders. You know what's going on in their head. And Matthew says, because of that, the city is stirring. It's a word that we get our word uh, seismic from. He's he's describing this shaking within the city. That's why I said a moment ago, we're talking about a a major, major event. Maybe even chaotic. But even in the midst of that, the bottom line is within those crowds, within the crowd and crowds, multiple, very few actually understood what the Messiah had come to do. They had their own perceptions. Some were saying the right things, but the perceptions were all wrong. The vast majority were were looking for a Messiah that they had created in their own minds. There were those who were, uh, that were calling out or, or believing that he was a king, but not the king. There were others, uh, and, and they were submitting to a Messiah that they wanted, not necessarily a, a Messiah that they needed. They were seeking to make him a Messiah that they wanted and weren't submitting to him as the one that they needed. And that explains why you take all of that together, why in just a few days, you're going to be crying for his execution. And what they didn't see is that there will be a time when he will arrive on a white horse and not a donkey. There will be a day when he will arrive in a regal robe, not peasant's clothes, but that regal robe will be dipped in blood. There will be a day and a time when heavenly armies will accompany him and he will rule with a rod of iron. There will be a day, but not this day. On this day, he enters as a suffering servant. On this day, he enters in as a suffering servant who would wear a crown of thorns. Today was the day that he would enter in and his legacy would be one of humility and gentleness, not of Pride or heavy handedness. Today was the day that rather than to submit to the whims and desires of the people around him. He submitted himself to the will of the father and the crown that he would eventually wear would only come after his cross. We live in a time when many profess a knowledge of Christ We live in a time when many get excited about spiritual things. Many verbally confess and outwardly express their adoration and submission to Christ. Many adhere to his moral teachings. And yet they miss him because of their own perception of who he is. They miss him because they've created an an idea or an image in their own minds And in the end, while they may admire him, they ultimately trip over the cross. 
And they, like many in the crowd, are more concerned with their physical and material needs than they are their spiritual need and their salvation from sin. But the truth is, as we've read and heard, as we've sung, Jesus Christ is the Son of David. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. As we read, as we began from Psalm 24, when we ask, who is this King of glory? The answer is the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. Who is Jesus Christ? And as Matthew wrote in chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the one who would save His people from their sins. And brothers and sisters, it is this Jesus we must proclaim. We must proclaim Him. May we be distinct voices in the crowd. Let's pray together.